Okay, good morning, brothers. I'm going to try to start on time. As we had been doing um, prior to nearly two years ago, um, this might not sound crazy, but come December, this December it would be two years since Deeper last met, so we're only a few months away from that. So um, if any of you are like me, the last two years, two years, year and a half plus, has, it seemed like it's hard to hard to get your equilibrium on what time is, is right? How long has it been? <laughs> anyway, so um, I'm going to read Psalm 1 and 2. So I'll read Psalm 1 and 2, and then there's some chairs all scattered through, guys. You just have to kind of get yourself in. I'll actually just start with Psalm 1, and then I'll pray um, as we get started again. So we will look at Psalm 1 and 2, but I'm going to Just read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning, for the privilege we have to spend time in the Word this morning together. Thankful that we're able to gather here and reflect upon what your Spirit has superintended for the good of your church. Pray as we consider um, the writings of the Old Testament, as we look at this section of Scripture marked um, in so many ways by um, wisdom. We pray that we would be um, growing in wisdom as your covenant people, that we would be um, continually being transformed in the image of your son, be growing in holiness, that your son would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you don't have a seat already, there's plenty um, of seats available still to you. I, here's what we're going to do. You guys know that we are um, in this third section of Scripture um, in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament called the Writings. And we'll talk a little bit about what the Writings are, and then hopefully, if all goes well, we'll look at the Psalter. It just depends on um, how efficient I, in fact, am in getting this done. So... We'll start with just a review, then we're going to look at the writings in general um, and wisdom because the first several books in the writings that we're going to look at are wisdom literature. So we'll just look at, you guys follow me so far? A review, writings in general, then wisdom in particular because we're going to start in those books, and then maybe if all goes well, we'll cover the Psalms all today. So that's always my dream, as you guys know, but I, I, I seldom achieve my goal. So... Let's, let's talk about what the story is so far. 
as we review. I gave you a, a number as we started biblical theology together. I gave you a number of uh, possible ways of stating kind of a summation of what we see going through the story of Scripture. One of those was from Graham Goldsworthy and, and Vaughn Roberts. Uh, it's the story of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So if you think of Adam and Eve, here they are. They are God's people. They are in the Garden of Eden. So that's the garden just below the mountain called Eden. They're in the Garden of Eden. So they're in God's place. And they're under God's rule and blessing. God has given them commands. They're walking in accord with those. And they're blessed by him. Remember, after God creates them, it says, and God bless them. Right? So they're walking under his rule and blessing. They have communion with the Lord. There is no sin. They fall into sin, and they're kicked out of the garden. They're no longer a, a blessed, but they're cursed. And in that sense, they're not God's people. So they're no longer God's people. They're no longer in God's place. They're no longer under God's rule and blessing. And you see the story uh, rolling out as God then begins to make these covenants. So Abraham, you'll be my people. I'm going to send you to my place, the promised land, and you're going to live under my rule and blessing. Israel, you're my people, right? I'm calling you out of Egypt. I'm taking you to my land. You're going to live under my rule and blessing. Here are my commands for you. Here are the ways I'll bless you if you keep them. Here are the ways I'll curse you if you don't. You guys remember this? Sorry, so we could drive that um, all the way through Scripture to Christ. And we... We really have been driving that all the way through Scripture to Christ. So the central promise that's given to Abraham we're going to look at and how that story plays out. Um, there are other ways to state this. For example, we could say the story of Scripture is, is God's glory in creation and new creation, right? As he redeems his people in the sun or something like that, Right? We could drive at that all the way. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing also drives at the Son, the person of the Son. Because when we get to Christ in the New Testament, he is God's people. Right? Um, when we get to Christ, we realize he is God's place. If, we're, if we remember John 1.14, the word became flesh, um, <clears throat> right? And dwelt or tabernacled among us. Right? And, and he is clearly under God's rule and blessing. You guys follow me on that? And so all of this meets together in him. Um, if we get all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation... Well, let me, let me just jump to the apostolic age. The church is God's people. Um, they're in God's place. You say, how so? Right? What are they called? The temple of God. They're under God's rule and blessing. When you get to the, new, uh, to the end where the new creation is consummated, again, he's announcing, you're my people. Right? I'm your God. You're in my place, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. You're under my rule and blessing. You guys following me on that? So the story just kind of stretches through. Um, all of this, being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, is lost at the fall into sin. And... And will be redeemed in the seed of the woman. So I had said earlier one way we could account for this is by saying it's God's glory in creation and new creation as he redeems his people in the sun. Right? John Calvin said that all of creation is a theater for the glory of God. And if you will, center stage in that theater 
is the story of redemption in Christ. Right? And so as we walk through the scripture, we're seeing this connection that everything that was lost is redeemed in the Son, in the seed of the woman. Remember this, at the fall, God gives this blessed promise. There will be a seed of the woman um, who will come and crush the serpent's head. We see that uh, first in humanity, in the promise in Genesis 3.15. We see that narrowed to a nation when God makes the same promise to Abraham. So all of humanity, the seed of the woman. Then it's going to be the seed of Abraham who's going to bless the nations. And if you remember, as we walk through the story of Abraham, we, we remember three promises God made to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. You guys remember that? We're tracing those out in the Old Testament story. Land, I'm going to take you to this land, right? That's God's place. Seed, I'm going to make you my people and, and basically make you fruitful and multiply you. And, and this, this, there's going to be this seed that comes from you, right? And blessing to the nations. Not, I'm go, through you and really through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations. You guys remember that? All the nations of the earth or all the families of the earth will be blessed through your seed. So we see that those, that those three things coming through the promises that God makes to Abraham. So humanity, then nation, and then tribe with Judah. This seed of the woman is not only going to come from humanity. The seed of the woman is not only going to come from the nation of Israel through Abraham's seed. It's going to come through the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. And then the house of David. So when we get... Israel in the land as a nation, eventually they get a king. He doesn't do so well. They get another king, David. And we're told that David's son, right, from David's house will come the Messiah, who will sit on the throne and rule forever. So we see that as we go through Scripture, that all really being consummated in Christ. The Christ is the one who will bring in the new creation. He has brought in the new creation We've talked about this, but we haven't spent a lot of time yet in the New Testament. But he has brought in the new, ca- new creation in an inaugurated sense. In other words, the new creation has begun. So think about this. If anyone in, is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The new creation has begun. But he has not yet consummated the new creation. Where he returns, we resurrect from the dead, um, and, and all things are made you know, if you will, like unto himself. We're, we're transformed into his image um, uh, fully, okay? We glorify God in every regard that a creature can, that a creature of our kind can, right? So we understand we're a particular kind of creature, human, embodied souls, right? Um, that's what we are, image bearers of God, we don't become different kinds of creatures when we die. You know that, right? You don't become an angel when you die. You guys know? Heaven does not gain an angel when you die, right? You didn't, you didn't transition to a different kind of creature at death. So we're clear about that. That's, that's sort of the very quick review of everything we've covered without going into much depth at all. So I, I do that just to bring you back up to date as to what we're looking for, right? Um, so let's talk about the writings. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I, I'm going to remind you of how Jesus divides the Old Testament. Jesus divides the Old Testament this way, which we understand Jesus would not have called the Old Testament. He just would have called the Scripture. 
Okay? They didn't have a New Testament. They just had the Old Testament only. That was their Bible. He divides it in a way that is not unique to him. It's actually the way that um, the Jews divided the Old Testament. And Jesus follows suit. But since Jesus endorses it, we'll take it as being on God's authority. Um, Luke 24 and verse 24, you guys know he comes um, to speak to um, the apostle, uh, to the two men on the way to Emmaus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he appears to speak to them. Look at verse 24. Some of those who were, who were with us, uh, oh, sorry, um, I've rock, marked down the wrong scripture. Um, look down to verse 44. That's what I must have meant to put. Yep, verse 44. Let me fix that on my notes. Ah, uh, it's not going to let me do it while I'm in presentation style. Okay, so 44, 24, 44. Then he said to them, this is when he speaks to the, all the disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets. Remember I told you we covered the latter prophets and the former prophets? Okay, so... The former prophets are what we call the historical books. You think Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, etc. Okay, the latter prophets are what we call the prophets, or the major and minor prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you think Malachi or Hosea, etc. Okay, these things are the prophets. For the Jews, that was just the prophets. Right? When we look at those, we we think historical books. Major prophets, minor prophets, right? Jesus just calls it the prophets. So, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms is the way that they reference the the section of scripture the Jews referred to as the writings. Because the Psalter is the predominant book in the writings. It actually isn't the first book that appears in the writings, but it is the largest book that appears in the writings. So we say the Psalms. That's that third section of scripture. You'll find that often if you think, what's the most um, well-known prophet? If you quote, if, for example, if, the, if an apostle is quoting a well-known prophet, or let's say he's quoting two well-known prophets, the most well-known prophet is the only one who gets named. So if you think about the beginning of Mark, um, in Mark he quotes from both Malachi and Isaiah. And then he says, as it says in Isaiah, right, or as the prophet Isaiah said. But he's quoting two prophets there. But he's going to quote the, the better known of the prophets. This is a typical way that they tend to handle things. So um, how is that broken down? If you will, this is really coming from a, there's an orange book, kind of largely orange, um, put out by Reformed Theological Seminary called a Biblical Theological something or other of the Old Testament, okay, um, and whatever it's called. Anyway, so in their introduction, they break it down, the law, the Torah, the first five books covering um, covenant. They're really about the covenant. If you think about those first five books, here's the foundation for the covenant under which Israel lives as a people. In fact, whenever the prophets point and say, um, here's how you guys are behaving, look at your history. They point to the history. Look, under King Saul, you behaved this way, right? You guys know when the prophets will do that. So if you take like Isaiah and he's pointing back and saying, look at how you 
behaved in this era. He's always holding it up against the Torah, the law, saying, look, here's God's covenant with you. Here's how you behaved in violation of that. Okay? So the law is referencing the covenant. Prophets are, are really about covenant history. So here's a covenant I made with you. Now here comes the history. Here's how you lived in light of that covenant. Now here come the prosecuting attorneys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, based on what I told you to do, what I promised you, and what you in fact did, you were guilty of this sin, and this sin, and this sin. You guys tracking with me so far? Okay. So covenant history. And the writings, the section we're coming into now, we might refer to as covenant life. Covenant life. In other words, what, what does it mean to live as God's covenant people? What does it mean to walk with him as God's covenant people? Um, we might say broadly that the writings, which begin with the Psalms, I say begin with the Psalms in the, in the um, not in our order of the canon, but in the Hebrew order of the canon, which begin with the Psalms, are about covenant life in the land. So it's like, what does it lo- look like to, li- to live as a covenant keeper in God's land? And the writings are really laying that out for you. Um, so what are they? This is the order they are. You guys understand our Protestant canon is not ordered the same way as the Hebrew canon was, okay? So what are they? The first book of the Hebrew canon is the Psalter, of, uh, as far as the section of the writings, or the Psalms. And Proverbs, you guys can see why Proverbs would be about life in the land, right? As would Psalms. Psalms are the songs that you sing in the land, right? Um, They teach you to walk wisely with God, to know who he is, what he's promised, what he's done, um, why he can be trusted. Proverbs, here's, you know, what we might call the most, what we think of wisdom literature, we tend to think of Proverbs, right? Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be puffed up or whatever. So which one is it, right? And so we're trying to sort through that. The fa- um, Job. Job is about covenant life in the land. It's wisdom. You, you look at Job's story as, if you will, um, the cosmic curtain is sort of pulled back. And you find out why what happened to Job happened to Job. And you learn as you're reading this book. Um, how various folks think it, God ought to be responded to in his actions or his sovereign um, providence. And, and then you learn what Job, the lessons sort of Job learns from all of that, right, about who God is and who he is as a creature. Um, and there's a lot more to say. But um, the five festal scrolls, um, I don't know why it changed it to festival, but okay. Anyway, um, Five festival scrolls, festival's fine. The, when, we, when we talk about that, uh, when, does anybody know why they're called the five festival scrolls or the five festival scrolls? Song of Songs. You guys, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther. Any, any guesses as to why they're called that? Good, Brett, right? And the... And, and the, the clue is in the name, festival or festival schools. They're read from during the major feasts. So if you guys think about the feasts, you know what, fe- you know what scroll was read from during Passover week? Might surprise you. Passover week. What are they celebrating at Passover? The, 
deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the Exodus theme is a big deal, right? We're coming, you know, if you will, um, Exodus is resurrection. Exile is death. And Exodus is coming up out of death and resurrection. They're, they're, they're celebrating that every Passover week, right? And they're, they're, how are they exiting the grave, coming out of exile? By the blood of the lamb, right? And they're celebrating that every Passover week, or every year at Passover. And what scroll's being read? Nope. It's one of the five festival scrolls, so you have five choices. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. So clearly they're not reading it as a book about sex. It would make no sense if they thought this was describing sex between a newly married couple to say, every Passover we'll read this in the gathered community of the saints, right? Let's, as we reflect on our Exodus, let's reflect on how a new couple performs sexual acts with one another and sings to each other while they do so. That's kind of how we read it in the modern era since the sexual revolution. Um, it's not like God is like, I'm going to give you a whole covenant book and now here's one about sex, right? Um, but that's the perversity of our own minds that drives us there. Um, it's never been read by that, that way in the history of the church until the modern era, by the way. Um, that is a uniquely modern and I think perverse way of reading the book. But Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther form um, the, the core of the five festival scrolls. Then Daniel, we usually think of Daniel as a prophet, but he actually belongs to the writings. He's an exilic prophet who um, is in the section of the writings. He's the only guy who really gives us a lot of history. There's some history here and there, but we get probably the most um, closely watched history of the period of exile of Israel in the book of Daniel. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, we think of as historical books, right? But they're in the section of the writings. These are the books by which you're taken out of exile and brought back into the land and rebuild the, the wall and begin the rebuilding the temple. You guys remember? And, and then Chronicles. Chronicles is a retelling of what you read in Samuel and Kings. Um, do you guys know that the Old Testament used to end with Chronicles? Do you guys know that? The Jewish order, the canon, ends with Chronicles. Um, anyway, so that, that's, the, that's the, the section of Scripture called the writings. That's what I hope to cover. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the five festival scrolls, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles um, this semester. That's my goal. We shall see. All right, so... <clears throat> Um, it should be easier than prior books, and I'll tell you why. The purpose of this uh, course that we've been working on, this study, the purpose of it is for us to see the biblical story unfolding. And so as we go through this section called the writings, um, as helpful as it is, I'm not trying to teach you, uh, at, at, by way of exposition, every book of the Old Testament. I'm trying to walk you through the books in as much as they're forwarding the story. There's a lot more we could dive into in each of the books. But we're trying to run through them to pull the story all the way through. So it shouldn't be that, that difficult, but 
We'll see. The first set of books are often called the wisdom literature. So I said within, within the writings, you have the wisdom literature. That set of books are Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. Those are the wisdom books. Um, they point us to what it means to walk in wisdom in the promised land um, as, it should, be, it should say, as God's covenant people, not and. So um, what it walk, means to walk in wisdom in the promised land as God's people, right? Here, here's how you do that. Um, how are we to walk wisely as God's covenant people in the land? That's the question. So God's made us his people. He's put us in this land. Now how do we walk in wisdom, right? Um, and these books teach us that in many regards. So what is wisdom? So it's one thing to say uh, you're supposed to walk in wisdom in the, in the, in the land as God's covenant people, but, but what is wisdom? Um, I stole this definition from um, Stephen Dempster to begin helping you understand wisdom in general in the Old Testament. Okay? Do I have any Hebrew students in here? Josh, word for wisdom, Hebrew? Remember? Pressure's on. No? Okay. Um, Wisdom signifies the mastery of a skill in a particular domain. Wisdom signifies the mastery of a skill in a particular domain. All right? Um, I I think the the word is first used in the Tanakh to describe the skill of individuals entrusted with the responsibility of making priestly garments. So this word for wisdom in Hebrew is actually used um, with responsibility of making the priestly garments in Exodus 28. That they were able to make those garments wisely. They've, they've mastered a skill in weaving garments. It's called wisdom. Um, and the constructing of the tabernacle at Sinai. Remember, they, um, the Spirit comes on these artisans and they, they construct the, the tabernacle there. They're, they're referred to as wise. People skilled at various tasks, whether singing. Um, the, the, the folks that were skilled at leading singing were called wise. There's a kind, there's, I know if, you're, if you lead music, there's a way in which we can say you're um, wise if you're skilled at it. If you're a good artisan, there are ways we say you're wise in, in your particular field. Um, singing or sailing. Psalm 107, 27, metallurgy, 1 Kings 7, 14, or military, military ability, Isaiah 10, 13, shipbuilding, Ezekiel 27, 9, or snake charming, right? Um, Psalm 58, 6, could be described as wise. In other words, think about all those fields in which people are being described as wise. And you guys use the word wisdom this way, by the way. When you know a man, whether a believer or unbeliever, you know a man who is particularly um, deft at his craft, whatever it is, in his field, and he just knows what to do and when to do it. You think, man, this, this, if I need to know what to do and when to do it in this field, I go ask this guy. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about there? Because you recognize he's wise in this thing, whatever it is, Right? 
So Brett is a, uh, a lawyer, a water attorney, water law attorney. Um, D is a guy who's done uh, water projects from before Brett was born. So, <laughs> so exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so Brett goes and asks D for wisdom on water projects or something with regard to the law, right? Because he's particularly deft at that. You, you guys understand what I'm getting at there? That kind of wisdom, we see it all around us. We usually refer to it as a kind of worldly wisdom. The Bible sees that as wise in the sense of um, you've mastered a skill in a particular domain, right? Or some knowledge in a particular domain. The, the Hebrew word for wisdom is actually used in that way. Um, I, I, I give you that background so that when we, when we walk into um, the notion of wisdom as we typically think about it, spiritual wisdom... We understand that wisdom is first mastery of a skill in a particular domain, right? Um, and, and next, what does it look like to have spiritual wisdom? So wisdom can also be taken more generally for wisdom in life itself. Solomon, Solomon is the wise man who rules over Israel. If Solomon is a typical king. When I say typical, I don't mean, oh, he's typical. That's typical. I mean typical in the sense that he's a type of the Christ, Right? He's a, he's a picture of the Christ. So Solomon is a typical king ruling a typical new creation. Or typological. In other words, his kingdom is a type of the new creation to come. Um, we see that as he as the king leads worship um, and in the, uh, uh, overseeing the tabernacle and the kingdom um, in 1 Kings. I mean, the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, 9, 10 chapters of 1 Kings, you think Solomon must be the seed of the woman we've been waiting for. He's amazing, right? It's incredible when you read the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings. You're thinking, okay, it's all arriving in Solomon. He's come. Everything I've seen from Genesis, all the promises have been made, he's the man. He is, in fact, the son of David. He has re-erected the temple he is a godly king. The nations are coming to him and bringing in their gold and jewels, etc., seeking wisdom from him so that he might bless them, right? He's serious about the worship of God in the temple or tabernacle. Like you think, he's the man. And then you get this verse. After all this glorious description of Solomon and his kingdom and his leadership as king, you get this, and Solomon loved many foreign women. No, right? <laughs> He is not the man, right? And so you recognize it as you go along. But Solomon's known for what? Wisdom. What does he ask God for? That's also, by the way, why you think he's the seed of the woman. Because when God says, ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you, what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. And what does he mean? I want to be masterfully skillful in leading God's covenant people to live the proper godly lives in God's covenant land. And you think, that's what we want in a king. Right? That's what we want. Um, Solomon is a wise man who rules over Israel well, as, as was the call of man from the beginning. What was Adam supposed to do? As a priest king, he was to rule over the creation wisely. Right? He's to um, subdue the earth, 
You guys remember that? Okay. And rule over it wisely. The wisdom for day-to-day life in God's kingdom requires the fear of the Lord. I'm going to come to that because this is a different category than wisdom and, and welding or something. This is the wisdom of day-to-day life as a, as a Christian man, if you will. It requires the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay. Um, you're not going to walk in wisdom as God's covenant people without fearing him. Those who fear the Lord are born again believers who walk in accordance with God's word. How do I know that? In the new covenant promise in Jeremiah, which I've already taught Jeremiah, so I'm not going to spend time there this morning. But in the new covenant promise in Jeremiah, we're told that God will write his law on our hearts. That he will put his spirit within us, Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, to cause us to walk in his statutes or his laws. In, In Jeremiah chapter 32 um, that is taken further, and we're told that he will put the fear of God in us. He'll, he'll make us walk in the fear of the Lord, right, so that we revere the Lord, so that we see him as God and ourselves as creatures properly, so that we know he is good and holy and wise and just and merciful, and he's to be worshiped alone, he's to be obeyed, he's to be trusted in, and we shouldn't trust ourselves at all. You guys follow me on that? So like the fear of the Lord is going to be given to us like a gift of the new covenant. So when you come to Acts, it says, we get this language in Acts, that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. Right? That the spirit had given them life. So they saw things as they really are. As God says they are. And not as their confused, blinded, deceived minds and hearts wanted to make them out to be, right? Um, So that promise comes. This is, in other words, the fear of the Lord only belongs to those who have been born again by God's spirit. That's the point I'm driving at. Now, it's not that new covenant, when the new covenant starts, that's the first time anybody's born again. So everybody prior to that went to hell. Okay, that's not the point. Jesus, in fact, expects fully that, that Nicodemus would understand what it means to be born again. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Right? People were being born again in the Old Testament. It's the only way anyone ever believed. It's the only, one anyway, it, only way anyone ever walked in the fear of the Lord. You had to be born again. No one enters the kingdom of heaven if they're not born again. So if Old Testament saints weren't being born again, then guess where they weren't entering? The kingdom of heaven. Right? That's a universal negative. But Hebrews 11 is quite clear that men like Abraham, Moses, Abel, etc. entered the kingdom of heaven. So it's always been the case and always will be the case that no one can walk in the wisdom that we call spiritual wisdom, if you will. Wisdom is God's covenant people. No one can walk in that unless the spirit of God has given them new life. They can't. You can meet men who walk in all kinds of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom that you might want to emulate in a lot of regards because they're, they do quite well in life on a lot, in a lot of things that you would want to emulate. But that doesn't mean they're walking in the proper spiritual wisdom. They don't have their eyes set on Christ who is above. Let, let me give you an example of this as a, as a pastor in church. The calling of the pastor is to point you where? Toward Christ. Toward Christ. In our current woke tyrannical sort of moment 
Where, what does everyone want the pastors to talk about? Well, the culture at large and the nation, etc. Ethics. Are ethics a bad thing to talk about? No. no. Pastors should teach ethics. They should. But they shouldn't teach ethics in the same way that the politician, let's say, teaches ethics. I don't mean by that politicians are dirty because I, I don't mean like politics means poly, many, ticks, bloodsuckers or something like that. That's not actually the <laughs> breakdown of politics or something, right? <laughs> where does... Where does, where does Politicians are those who govern the city, the polis, the city, right? And so it's not, we use it like a dirty word, but it's supposed to be a good word. Um, they govern the city. Um, politicians, as they govern the city of man, they want to talk about ethics from the perspective of what, what brings us to a greater city of man. You guys follow me on that? Pastors are supposed to say, well, yeah, we want a better city of man. That's all good. But actually, where we want your eyes to be set is on Christ and the city of God. So any ethics I teach about walking in the city of man always needs to be an ethic that points you to there's something greater. Your eyes should not be set here on earthly things. Your eyes should be set in heaven above where Christ is. Um, But it's really easy to get caught up in that. So I can be a good politician who clearly teaches you ethics, good ethics, about how to govern the city of man well. And, and I can be respectable and worth listening to. There are people out there who aren't believers, you guys probably listen to some of them, who are great thinkers about what makes a better city of man, right? And they're worth listening to. They're worth reading. Because it do, ethics in the day-to-day, as far as the city that we live in, do matter. But those men are not pointing you to what ultimately matters, which is the city of God and looking to Christ who's there. That's the role of the pastor. You guys understand the distinction there? The pastor then is pointing you to the wisdom that is coming from the fear of the Lord. That's, that's what he's pointing you to. Okay? Uh, there, there will be some crossover between those two things. I'm just talking about primarily where your eyes are being set. Right? A better America, right? Or eternal life with Christ. You need to be taught about both. They're both important. You guys follow me on that? Both matter. One is ultimate. Okay? Um, All right, so that's what the pastor's job is to teach the fear of the Lord by pointing you to Christ. So the Psalms. Um, Look, if you will, at Psalm 1. Where we'll talk a bit about Psalm 1 and 2 um, because we want to get into the first book in the writings and really in that subcategory of the writings, the first book of the wisdom literature. The first book in wisdom literature, um, I, I want to ask what are the Psalms about? We have a Psalter. Um, how many Psalms are there? 150. Right in the middle, you're like, where's our hymnal? Right in the middle of your Bible, 150 songs for Christ's church have been provided. We don't sing very many of them. Um, we're, they're, they're not easy to learn how to sing. So we, but, but here you go. You, like the Bible has a built-in hymn book. So if you don't think you need to sing in worship, then you just don't understand Christianity at all. Right? Singing is part of the life of a Christian worshiper. 
So much so that the largest book we have is a book of songs for Christ's people to sing. Right? Um, and so there, we have this Psalter, 150 songs that they actually sang. Um, I've told you guys this in the past. In the first 10 centuries of, of the Christian church, so from the apostles through to um, um, all, nearly the 11th century, all the church sang was the Psalms. They had a few other little hymns that are like, if you think probably Philippians 2, you know that section um, about Christ being in the form of man, etc. That, that likely was a hymn. So there's some other little hymns that we find in scripture, but they basically sang the Psalter. They sang the Psalter with no instruments. Um, so that was the typical practice for nearly a thousand years, um, or the common practice is probably a better language to say, for nearly a thousand years. In the medieval period, that began to shift. They added other things. And then when you get in the late, especially in the late medieval period, when you get to the Reformation, some of these guys bring back, let's just sing the Psalms and have no instruments. Guys like Calvin. Other guys say, let's sing some hymns. And there were debates about that. And I'm not trying to resolve that debate um, at all. I'm just saying for a lot of the church's history, my point is the Psalter was seen as, as essential to the life of the church in song, Right? Um, it's actually somewhat foreign that it's not seen that way. That's the point I'm making from a historical perspective. Um, so this book has been um, kind of the consolation of the church for centuries. If you sang all 150 psalms all the time, what would happen to you? You'd memorize them. If you had the 150 psalms memorized, how much stronger do you think your spiritual life would be on a day-to-day basis? Right? Um, now, I can't give you a gauge of that. There isn't a perfect mathematical equation. 150 psalms memorized equals this much stronger of sanctification. 130 equals this much or whatever. The point is, when you, when you get the word of God into you like that, it, it, the spirit of God uses that to grow you, right? Um, okay, so the psalm, what are the psalms about? That's the question we ask. Um, and, and I want to say, land and seed. And, if you will, blessing. Or, um, as Stephen Dempster says, geography and genealogy. That's another way of saying land and seed. You guys follow that? Um, to put it in a completely different way, but, but the same substantive answer, I'll use Robert Godfrey. Robert Godfrey wrote a book called Learning to Love the Psalms. He said the Psalms are about the king and his kingdom. Um, the king and his kingdom. Is that another way of saying land and seed? Yes, because the seed point we're pointing to is the king. The seed. And the land we're pointing to is the kingdom. The kingdom. So I'm really picking up on that language of the king and his kingdom when I look at the Psalter because I think it's the most descriptive in a way that helps you get your grip on it quickly. Um, a grip on it quickly. But Psalm 1 and 2, what we call the first two Psalms here, which by the way, if you notice that, look at Psalm 1 and 2. Um, and then look at Psalm 3. And here's the question I have for you. What's the difference between Psalm 1 and 2 and Psalm 3? What's the difference? No, I don't mean read the whole Psalm. Okay, because that's going to take you too long to compare all the distinctions. Okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, 
Okay, look at the beginning of Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. You're both given the author and the context of the psalm when it was written. So when you, read, when you sing Psalm 3, you're singing Psalm 3 as a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So you need to know the history of David fleeing from Absalom, his son. And then it makes sense of that psalm and why he's singing it. But you're, that superscript, the psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, is part of the original text of scripture. Technically, when you're reading that psalm, you're supposed to read that line. Because that's a verse just like, oh Lord, how many are my foes? That's part of the original text. Now the thing, up, the thing next to it, the big giant three, with save me, oh my God, not part of the original text. That's just something we've added. You guys follow me on that? But Psalm 1 and 2 don't have a superscript like that. That tell you um, who the author is. We all, I, I'm pretty much every scholar agrees the author is David. Uh, there might be some who disagree with that, but the author, I think, I, I can't imagine anybody disagreeing with the author being David, who's going to make any solid case uh, for a different position, but it's just pretty much commonly accepted. The other thing is, because you don't see a superscript, many scholars believe that Psalm 1 and 2 were always read together, not separately. Like, we divide Psalm 1, Psalm 2 but many re- believe they're always read and even sung together. Um, the first two psalms, the doorway, this is a quote from Stephen Dempster, the doorway into the Psalter stressed that the blessed person, right, and, and I'm going to say the king here, because the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2, introduced the Psalter with a clear focus on David as the king, right, and his kingdom. They start that way. The first two psalms, the doorway into the Psalter, stress that the blessed person who meditates on the Torah, the law, day and night, will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You guys remember that? Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. I think the man here is the typological man. I don't like the translation when, that goes the person. Because actually the man here is the Davidic king. And the Davidic king as a type of the true messianic king to come. In other words, you are not the man, right? Um, Who's the man? Not you, right? You're supposed to be the man, but you will never be this man, right? Apart from Christ. Christ is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You want to be like that man. Right? That's the man Adam failed to be. That's the man Israel failed to be. That's the man David failed to be. David was that man at times in his life. You guys know that, right? That man at times in his life. And then one day he stays behind from war, we're told. He stayed behind from the war, went up on the rooftop, and became some kind of peeping Tom. right? And led to um, adultery and all sorts of other things. At that moment, you know... He's not the man meditating on the law day and night, right? Um, We're the man in the same way David is the man. Hopefully you're not peeping off your roof at other women, but you understand the point. In the same way, in the sense that your spiritual life is up and down, up and down, up and down, right? Okay. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
This is fascinating because it's, it's Edenic. A tree planted by streams of water. It's like the scene in Eden. Right? This is the language we see in Ezekiel 37. Or 47, sorry. It's the language we see there. It's, it's the language we see in Genesis 2. Remember there's these trees planted by these streams of water. And we have the four rivers that are coming in. You guys remember that? Okay. It's the language we see in Ezekiel 47 in the temple. With the trees next to the river. Um, the, the, the river's coming out of the temple and watering the trees, and so they're bearing the fruit in season. It's the same language we see in Revelation 22 when you're in the new creation and there's this river coming through, watering the tree of life, and it doesn't wither, and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. You guys remember that whole thing? Okay. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there are two men, those who will be damned under judgment and cursed, and those who will be blessed. Um, The only way you become that blessed man is in Christ the blessed man, then you're counted righteous in him. You guys follow that? So then you're being conformed or transformed more and more into his image, right? So that you're more and more like him. But notice what it says. uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What do the wicked do? What do the wicked do? Look at the first thing. Don't do the things the wicked do. What do they do? You guys see that he says not to do three things. Well, what are the three things? If you want to sum it up, what do they do? Well, that's what you're not to do. So what, what, what? So the wicked have a kind of counsel. What's counsel? Advice or wisdom is how to live day to day. Okay. They have a kind of counsel or advice or wisdom. They have a way of life, a sinful way of life, a wicked sort of counsel. Um, They sit in a seat to sort of judge as scoffers. They scoff. So um, you're going to pick that language up. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take what? Counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah. Anointed Messiah saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do the nations do? They rage and plot and take counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah. Um, They are the wicked man that you're not to walk in the way of or sit in the seat of or... um, uh, you guys follow me that walk in the council of or sit in the seat of stand in the way of. Okay. So, so we're going to pick this up. The first two Psalms, I'm going to read this again. The doorway into the Psalter stress of the blessed person who meditates on the Torah day and night will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. There are allusions to the tree of life in the garden of Eden, Genesis two, and to the eschatological tree of life planted by the river of life flowing from the new temple in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47. 
The second psalm stresses the importance of the Davidic kings meditating on Nathan's oracle to David, which now has universal scope. Okay, so I want to talk about that for a minute as we look at Psalm 2. This Psalm 1 and 2 are the doorway to the Psalter. And the second psalm is talking about David meditating on the oracle of 2 Samuel 7. Remember I told you that we have a developing story from the seed of the woman who is representing this Messiah is coming from humanity, this king who will bring in the kingdom is coming from all humanity. And then we're told in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, that that king is coming from the line of Abraham or the nation of Israel. We're told in Genesis 49 that that king is coming from the tribe of Judah. We're told in 2 Samuel 7 that that king is coming from the house of David. Remember that? I'll establish the throne of your son. He'll, he'll sit on my throne forever. Do you guys remember that whole passage in 2 Samuel 7? Okay. And David's meditating on that in, in Psalm 2. That covenant promise. So let's look. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed being the anointed king. And David, as the anointed king of Israel, is typological of the, anoint, the anointed king who is the Christ. And what do they say? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, it's not just that we as individuals aren't the blessed man in and of ourselves, only in Christ. But the nations are not interested in following the king of kings. They're not interested in that. They don't want to follow him. He who sits in the heavens, verse 4, laughs. Um, Luther refers to this as, this kind of thing as, well, he picks up on this kind of language and says we ought to participate in laughing with God at, at, the, at the wicked kings who, you know, essentially, you know, it, it's a little bit like do your worst. What, what can you do? You can burn us at the stake or, or kill us or whatever, but, but you're, the, you know, you're a joke. Because at the end, God's going to judge you all, crush you, right? And so he has what scholars call an eschatological sense of humor. Not a scatological sense of humor. He wasn't, wasn't laughing at farts and stuff like that. But an eschatological sense of humor. In other words, he looks at the times uh, from the perspective of God and laughs with him. I, I, I understand. So you look at Psalm 2 and you ask... Um, what is God doing as he looks at um, many of the states and, well, in, in, in a real sense, all of the states of the United States of America who are doing many things to burst apart or burst away the bonds of God's law from their state? What, how does God see that? Well, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. What fools. You guys follow? That's what David's meditating on. Um, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? I've set him there. I will tell the decree. So that's the Lord. The Lord is speaking, saying, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now listen, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is an interesting passage. 
Um, I'll talk about this more next week. But um, the way this is read is David speaking in the person of the father, or excuse me, of the person of the son. The Lord said to me, you are my son. David speaking, but the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he's speaking of the eternally begotten son. I'll get into why a bit more next week. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So the king is coming. The Lord's already, you know, set him on his holy hill. He's coming. He's the son, the only begotten son, who is the king who will come and put all of the wicked nations under his feet. He'll utterly, utterly destroy them in his derision for them, okay, or toward them. Do you guys follow the story? David's meditating on that. Now, but I'm a sinner. I break God's law. How can I be the blessed man and not the man who gets judged and cast away forever? Last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, I'm more like the wicked than the blessed man. Anybody else in here? Okay. All of you all. Right? So how do I not fall under the judgment and wrath of the son? The judgment that comes for the wicked. How do I not fall under that? Well... Blessed are all who take refuge in him, the truly blessed man, the Davidic king, the Messiah. So um, that becomes sort of the gateway or the doorway to the Psalter. Before I break, uh, I'm going to have to save all that for next week. So let me um, give you guys a chance as we look at that, the king and his kingdom. Um, as we sing about that and talk about the Psalter, we'll cover it in, in full next week. The whole Psalter, we will, I, I promise you. Um, that means you're going to say, how are we going to do it? We're only going to read five psalms um, next week and talk about essentially how you read the Psalter in general and break down the five books of the Psalter. Um, but because you guys might not know this, the Psalter is broken into five books. So we'll break them down next week, read a psalm from each one of them, as well as the benediction at the end of each one of them. Each psalm, each book of the Psalter ends with the benediction. So we'll look at that next week and then talk about how you read the psalms a little bit more particularly this kind of language in Psalm 2. Um, I will tell the decree, right? Th- this sort of language. So, um, what questions do you guys have? I'll stop here so I have time for that. Yes, sir? We've, we've sung a couple, but ask Jordan. It's just really hard for Jordan to learn to sing because there are a ton of work and then teach congregations. But ask him. I've been asking him. It's just when you're not a paid employee of the church and you don't have time to work on it all the time, it's tough. So, you guys know we haven't paid a musician in like seven years or something as a church, I don't think. Um, And if I have my way, we never will. No offense to Jordan. He's great. I wouldn't mind hiring Jordan full-time someday if we grow large enough, but not to pay him to do music. Uh, (laughs) All right. Jeff, <laughs> someday. Jeff already knows the trajectory. Ten years, Jeff, ten years. Yeah, Adam, go ahead. <laughs> when, he, uh, when, when Solomon uh, asked for wisdom, it wasn't given to him comprehensively, obviously, because he loved men and women. 
why was there that exception? Was it not given to him comprehensively? He's, he still has wisdom uh, and the fear of the Lord. He just acted like a fool. No, that's not behaving wisely. But it doesn't mean he didn't know what was wise. He didn't behave wisely. Like, there are sins you commit that before you even commit them, you go, this is, this is a sin I'm about to commit. <laughs> What's that, Keaton? Uh, Solomon, I think, does write Ecclesiastes. I think he is the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And he says at the end, right after talking about how everything is vanity. If you read Ecclesiastes, it's fairly depressing. Basically, I pursued this, vanity. I pursued this, vanity. I pursued, like, I, you're just going to die and, no, and you're going to be forgotten. And by the time you get to your grandchildren, no one will remember you. It's all vain. I tried to build a legacy, vanity, right? Like he just, um, it's, it's sort of everything that you put your hand to the plow on in life. He's just like, it's all a waste of your time. It's a chasing after the wind, right? So D's built a really good company. Here's D's legacy, complete vanity. By the time your grandchildren are old enough, they'll forget your name. So, sorry, D, they love you now, but eventually you'll die and you'll be forgotten. So, right, and no one will know what the D Jasper and Associates is anymore. Vanity, right? And so you read this. If you're a guy who's spent your whole life faithfully building something like Solomon has, you read this and go, what, this is depressing, right? So then he gets to the end of the book and he says, I've considered it all and, and what matters? What matters in the end? Yeah, the sum of it, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Uh, I think that's Solomon. I chased after all these women, pleasure, wealth, etc. Total vanity. Well, I think he's both wise and skillfully running the kingdom and spiritually in many regards. I don't think the spiritual wisdom just comes at the end of his life. If you look at the beginning of his kingdom, it's glorious. He's quite wise and godly. Yeah, the committing of the temple is... The of the is a high point in the Old Testament. It's probably the highest point in the life of Israel um, as, a, as a covenant people. I mean, if, if our church ever reaches the point that Israel reaches in the committing of the temple by Solomon, I'll feel like I'm just right on the cusp of heaven. I mean, it's that glorious a scene, right? Um, and so it's, he's, he's quite skillful in wisdom. Guys, here's the reality. David isn't the Messiah. He isn't sinless. Um, so he struggles with real things. Solomon isn't the Messiah. He isn't sinless. So he struggles with real things. He does dumb things. You're being taught again and again, even at the height of a fallen sinner, as, who's the most wise, godly, maybe fallen sinner you know, he's still a comprehensive mess and can't save you. That, that's, I, I, if you go through the story of the Old Testament, you feel like every character after the fall, Cain is born. And Eve says, I've gotten, a man by, I've, I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. And, and she's celebrating as, as if, okay, here comes the seed of the woman who will kill the, who destroy the serpent, right? Save us. And then they give, she gives birth to Abel. And what does Cain do? 
kills Abel. Cain goes off, okay, he's not the man. And Abel isn't the man either, though he was godly. He's not the man either, he can't be, he's dead. Right? So here comes Seth. All right, the godly line of Seth versus the line of Cain. Then you read about the godly line of Seth. They become a train wreck by Genesis 6. You guys remember that? I'm going to destroy all the men. They all stink, except Noah. I've shown great grace to Noah. He's walking in godliness. I'm going to save him and his family. You think, Noah's the man. He's a preacher of righteousness, we're told. Right? He builds the ark. Right? Comes off the ark. Offers the sacrifice. He's the man. God covenants with him. I'm starting over with you. You're the new Adam. How do you know that? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, he's the new Adam. He's the man. Then what happens? He planted a vine, gets drunk. Oh, no. Not the man, right? And his sons, they aren't the man either. They're sickos, right? At least two of them. One of them is, is, uh, is, seems like the man, Shem. Maybe he's the man, right? Nope. Get down. You know, you, you read about Babel. Again, a mess, right? You keep going on. Abram, finally, the man is here. Man, Abram believed God and was counted as righteousness. His seed's going to bless the earth, right? He's the man. God covenants with him. What's the first thing he does after God covenants with him? Goes into, goes into Egypt and does what? <laughs> oh, she's my sister. You can have her. You guys remember? Ah, not the man, right? Maybe God sees a restorium, Genesis 15. I made a covenant fire. You guys smoking fire pot through the pieces. Oh, maybe Abram still is the man. Genesis 16, sleeps with Hagar. Oh, not the man, right? You guys understand the point here, okay? Go to Isaac, same. Go to Jacob, same. Go to Joseph. He seems pretty good, but we're told directly he's not the man, right? Moses strikes the rock, can't even go into the promised land. Maybe Moses is the man. If anybody in the Old Testament could be the man, maybe it's Moses, not the man, right? Then you come to Joshua, doesn't go and kill all the peoples he's told to go and kill. He disobeys, not the man. Saul, definitely not, right? Just keep going out. David, he's the the man after God's own heart. He's the man who will do the right thing no matter what. He's the man who went on the rooftop and spied out Bathsheba, not the man. Solomon, high point, best king in the history of Israel at this point, as far as in this moment in his life. Right? If you will, David's the king par excellence of Israel till Christ. But Solomon, it, under his kingdom, they reached their pinnacle. Right? And Solomon loved many foreign women, not the man. This is just the story of the seed of the woman coming, and you keep thinking maybe it's him. Nope. Noah. Right? Nope. Moses. Nope. David. Nope. Solomon. Nope. Abraham. Nope. No, none of these guys. Who is it? And then you hear about this one born in Bethlehem. Here he is. And so that, that, that is incredibly important for us to understand that while these men are typological of Christ, so that they in some ways have great grace in their lives, they aren't the Messiah. Right? They aren't the Messiah. But they walk in some serious wisdom at times. Like sometimes in godliness that you wished you could walk in or I wished I could walk in. And sometimes tragic in ways that we think, man, thank God I haven't gone there. 
right? But, uh, but by the grace of God go I, right? Keep it in mind. Listen, if Solomon can li- love many foreign women, the wisest man uh, born among women prior to Christ, so can you. If you think you can't, you're an arrogant fool, right? So you have to guard your heart. All right. Um, other questions? Yes, sir. Why is Chronicles group with the writings as opposed to the history, since it is pretty much the same material as the Kings? It's a great question that I will answer when we get to the Chronicles so I don't steal my own thunder. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good question. Why is Chronicles uh, put with the writings? Same thing with Ezra and Nehemiah. Therefore, in the history post-exile, right? It's a good question. I didn't teach Ruth. In the, I taught Ruth when I, when I finished Judges, so I'm not going to teach it as one of the five festal scrolls, but it really belongs in this section. I just taught it because in, in history it belonged with the Judges. But in, in the order of the canon, it belongs in the five festal scrolls. So, um, so that'll be a little bit out of order as well. Any, anybody else? All right, so next week we'll look at the Psalter as a whole. So if you want to read all 150 Psalms this week, that'd be great. Get you ready. Um, mark off the five books. I'm sure if, if you want to do anything, just go through your Psalter and look at where each book is marked. Book one, book two. Most of your Bibles mark book one, book two, book three, don't they? Of the Psalter. Here's what I would tell you to do. Um, read the last verse of that, of each book. So when you come to a book and it's like, book two, go read the last verse of book one. Last couple of verses, the last verse, it's a, you'll see it's a benediction. At the end of each book, there's a benediction. And then I would tell you to pick a psalm from each of the five books and read it and ask yourself the question, what's generally happening in this book of the Psalter? Right? If you want some homework, do that. What's generally happening in this book of the Psalter? And then read the benediction for each book. So, and ask the question, how does Psalm 1 and 2, a doorway to all five of these books with regard to the king and his kingdom? All right. Um, That said, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the chance that we have to spend time in your word this morning. We pray uh, that you would give us wisdom as Solomon had in the fear of the Lord, that you would cause us to walk in godliness, that you would cause us to be humble in recognizing that regardless of the progress in godliness that we see in our lives by the grace of your spirit, we are one breath away from our own wicked flesh leading us down terrible roads. Help us to trust in Christ, who is the blessed man, um, and to find our blessing and taking refuge in him. Cause us to walk in the fear of the Lord and keep your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen.